0: And welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Rachel Britt, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. Today, we're again talking about multidrug-resistant infections, but from a different angle than usual, and we're going to dive deep into the world of bacteriophage therapy. This is a newer area of clinical therapeutics, and I have two excellent guests to break it down for us. I'd like to welcome Saima Eslam and Daria Van Tyne to BreakPoints. Welcome you guys. Dr. Saima Eslam is a professor of medicine, director of the Solid Organ Transplant Infectious Diseases Service and clinical lead for the Center of Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics at UCSD. She's engaged in providing exceptional clinical care as well as clinical and translational research in the field of transplantation and phage therapy. Dr. Aslam graduated with honors from the Aga Khan University in Pakistan in 1999, and then trained at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas in internal medicine and infectious diseases. Dr. Aslam also received a master's of science in clinical investigation from BCM in 2008 and a certificate from the Health Leadership Academy at UCSC in 2020. Hi Saima, thanks for being here. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. Next up, we have Dr. Daria Van Tyne. Dr. Vantyne is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Daria received a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from Vassar College, spent a year as a Fulbright scholar in Granada, Spain, and then went on to earn her PhD in biological sciences and public health from Harvard University. She then did her postdoc in the lab of Mike Gilmore at Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, where she developed expertise in comparative and functional genomics of antibiotic-resistant pathogens. Daria joined the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine as an assistant professor in 2018, and her lab studies how bacteria evolve in vivo during human infection and also develops new approaches to treat antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections more effectively.
1: Welcome, Daria. Hi, thanks for having me.
0: I also did my residency training up in Boston, so it's exciting when I see another person Um, who trained in my neck of the woods. Although, you know, our training angles were a little different. Small world. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like I said, we're going to be talking all about bacteriophage therapy today, which is not an area that I have much experience with myself. So I'm excited to have the both of you here to really walk us through the clinical application um, and how you see bacteriophage therapy being used today. But first, I would love to get to know the both of you a little better and ask how you got into
2: this area of research in the first place. Sure. So, um, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a transplant physician. I've um, been heading the transplant ID service at UCSD for about 12 years now. And as part of transplant, we see a lot of patients with a lot of multi drug resistant organisms. And as you know, MDRs are on the rise anyway globally. Uh, but that phenomenon is much more concentrated in the immunocompromised patients, so both pre and post transplant. And so for me, um, I mean, that, that was sort of one big need that I see as a physician. And then I just, you know, it was pure luck that I happened to be at UCSD when Chip and Stephanie decided to treat Tom Patterson with phage. Um, so that was in 2016. So that was really my first introduction to phage, you know, as a therapeutic. And um, so I've been treating patients now since 2017 with phage. But, I feel like there are a million indications, but we need to sort of really solidify where it works best and learn how to use it better.
1: And for me, it's it's great to hear how Saima came to phage therapy from the clinical side. I came from the research side. So uh, during my postdoc, I became interested in bacteriophages and started doing some research and experiments with um, phages of enterococcus, which was one of the bacteria I was researching as a postdoc um, and sort of got, got really interested and excited about phages as biological entities. And then when I moved to University of Pittsburgh and started my lab, um, I landed in a clinical division where all of my colleagues are physicians um, and I am not a physician, I'm just a researcher. And so I, had this really strong interest in in phages um, and their biology, but also started talking to my colleagues and hearing about all of the patients with with resistant infections that they were seeing and um, and seeing a clinical need that um, that we might be able to meet through our research. And so it was a sort of happy coincidence that I landed at Pitt with a strong interest in phage, and there seemed to be a real need for phage at um, at Pitt. and um, and I guess one thing led to another. And here we are.
0: Well, great. Well, you guys both have different backgrounds and perspectives on phage. So that's why I'm really excited that both of you guys were able to join us today, because I think we're going to be able to get such a holistic view of this and a tangible feel of how we can really use this as we enter into phage therapy, maybe being more part of the clinical realm, which I'm sure y'all will tell us all about. So, next, Daria, can you please tell us how bacteriophage therapy is developed and how it works exactly?
1: Yeah, so at the at the most basic level, bacteriophages are viruses of bacteria, just like viruses of, of humans. They are a, a, a little microscopic organism that wants to get inside a cell and use that cell as a factory to make more of itself. So some bacteriophages adopt a chronic infection cycle where they integrate themselves into the genomes of bacteria, and then they're propagated along with the bacterial genome as it undergoes cell division. Other bacteriophages um, cause uh, acute or what we call lytic infections. And this is where the bacteriophage simply uses the bacterial cell as a factory to make more of itself. And in doing so, it lyses the bacterial cell. And it's that property of lytic bacteriophages that we are particularly interested in for therapeutic application. Because um, if you infect a population of bacteria with a lytic bacteriophage, the phage will destroy the population of bacteria. So that's how the technology works in principle. Um, How it works in practice is that we first have to find phages from somewhere. And so uh, researchers often go out into the environment, or collect samples from some place that they think has a lot of phages in it. So when I started my lab at the University of Pittsburgh, um, we, we got some clinical isolates of pathogens that my colleagues might like to treat with phage therapy if phages were available. And we used those clinical isolates to screen and try and identify phages that were active against them. And where did we look for phages? We simply went to wastewater. So we collected wastewater from a Pittsburgh area hospital, as well as uh, municipal water systems around our city. And then we incubate the wastewater with the clinical isolate of interest and we look for evidence of phage killing. In the laboratory, and if we see evidence of phage killing, then we have to we isolate and propagate the phages um, to purify them, and then we characterize them. And when we're done with our characterization, um, if the phages have properties that uh, we want, like they are lytic against uh, particular strains of bacteria, um, and we have them at sufficient purity, then we put those isolated phages into like a library or a bank of phages. Um, And that is literally a bunch of tubes of lysates that sit in our cold room in our laboratory. And that bank of phages is available to test against anything you'd like to test it against. And so over the last four years, we've made these banks of phages for different organisms. And now my lab receives um, requests for susceptibility testing, for uh, phage susceptibility of clinical isolates from patients that could be candidates for phage therapy. Um, And so we receive the isolates in my lab. We test them against our libraries of phages. If we find a match, then we are in a position to make uh, like a custom cocktail of phages that's tailor tailor made for a particular patient's infecting bacterial isolate. Um, And in those cases, we're ready, we're, we're able to make manufacture the phage and then treat patients on an individual use basis. Um, that's how it works in my lab. Saima, do you want to talk about how it works in your setting?
2: So as a clinician, I, I don't have a lab that I work in, but I reach out to researchers like Daria and there are a number of academic labs, you know, both in the US um, and in many other countries, including. Uh, Eastern Europe, you know, in Europe in general, where a lot of phage therapy has persisted for many decades, as well as other places in the world like Australia, India, you know, certain centers in Africa, etc. Anyway, um, but when we do, when when we are approached by a patient that's interested in phage or by a physician that thinks a patient may benefit from phage, uh, I reach out to people like Daria or others. that specialize in certain forms of phages targeting certain organisms. So Daria, you had mentioned intercoccus phages, you know, as well as several other organisms you work with. Um, there's Dr. Graham Hatful's group also at Pitt that works with mycobacterial phages. Um, here at UCSD, David Pride, uh, his lab works in particular with pseudomonas and also enterococcus phages. So similarly, I feel like people have areas of specialties of which which phages they've developed libraries on. There are also a number of companies now, uh, or you know pharmaceutical companies that focus on certain phages as well. In particular, I think for Pseudomonas and Staph aureus phages, there's a number of companies that have such uh, phages for use also. So usually we'll reach out to someone, uh, you know, based on whatever organism we want to treat, we'll reach out and send patients' isolates to Daria, for instance, um, you know, or to David Pride's lab at UCSD. um, And they'll basically assess their phage library against this patient's isolate and, you know, run through... X number of phages to see which phages are active against the patient's bacterial isolate um, and has you know a good level of activity that we would want to use it clinically. So I think that's sort of where it gets started. Um, and then generally on my end, I'm really in charge of helping make treatment plans, trying to figure out how do we, you know, how do we treat this patient? Is this a good patient to treat first of all? Um, based on whatever their clinical infectious entity is, and do do I think this will respond to phage or not, Um, and then help develop treatment plans in terms of, well, how do we want to administer it? Are we going to give it intravenously, or is this something in which topical therapy would be beneficial, and then help, you know, basically develop those plans um, and develop treatment plans and management for patients. Um, one of the questions you were interested in was, you know, what organisms are being treated with phage? And I think there's a huge variety. Um, part of it is focused on which organisms are very prevalent in terms of multidrug resistant organisms. So, Pseudomonas is a big one. Um, Staph aureus certainly is a big one. When we looked at the requests for phage therapy that we get at IPATH, which is the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics at UCSD, Um, over several, I think about 1,200 or so requests that we've had since 2018. The top five organisms of interest that people are interested in are Pseudomonas, Staph aureus, E. coli, uh, Mycobacterium abscesses, Um, and then the fifth that we haven't treated thus far, but there's interest actually in Lyme disease from a lot of people, Um, but I've never heard of a case uh, or of anyone in actually treating that with phage, But for the MDROs, I think it's sort of the classic ones that we encounter in our clinical practice.
0: Yes, I have so many questions after um, that that explanation from both of you guys. And you answered my first one, which what pathogens can currently be treated with bacteriophage therapy? But another thing that you both mentioned was evaluating a patient for using phage therapy. So I'll, I'll go to that question next. What would you say is the current role in therapy Uh, for phages, and when should we consider it for patients?
2: So generally, so currently, you know, step one is that, or thing to understand is that phage therapy is experimental, right? So this is not an approved therapeutic that we will be using for X number of indications. We still need clinical trials to show that benefit. Um, But when we talk about experimental therapy, then what that means is for each patient that I or anyone wants to treat we reach out to the FDA first and basically, you know, make a case for them giving us approval uh, to proceed. And usually that makes, you know, for that you need to make a case of need, meaning this patient has already tried, you know, all kinds of antibiotics, but, or there is a highly XDR organism in which we have no antibiotics. For some patients I've treated, they have drug susceptible infections. But that have been recalcitrant to antibiotic and other standard therapy, like prosthetic joint infections or a left ventricular assist device infection that can't be cured with antibiotic alone. So I think currently for that experimental approval for the FDA, what we're looking for generally are life or limb threatening infections, whether it's you know highly MDR or not. Um, and so so that's I think the key in terms of what. Well, this is a case that we would want to use, and the FDA would, you know, say yes. Please go ahead, and they would approve us for an experimental single compassion use single patient IND. Um, but I, I think the utility of phages probably is beyond that. It's it, I don't. I mean, currently that is what we're using it for. But I think there's so many applications that probably can benefit patients beyond these very limited. You know, high risk type patients. And sometimes, some, sometimes we get reached out for a patient that, you know, may be critically ill in the intensive care unit setting with a highly drug resistant pseudomonas pneumonia, for example. But because, and I'm sure Daria will go into it, there's a big lag time from when, say, I identify a patient I want to treat to actually identifying, manufacturing, and then getting phage to that patient. for some of these critically ill patients, they're not going to have months and months to wait for that to happen or, you know, weeks for that to happen. And so those currently, you know, we, we have that discussion, but generally we're treating patients that are, you know, what's sort of known as stably sick, meaning they're either really colonized with something that's drug resistant, but they're not actively dying from it so that we have time to find phage or it's. A prosthetic joint or some such infection that they can be maintained on an IV antibiotic for you know x number of months while we're waiting for phage to work out. But uh, I'll let Daria add in some information on the timeline.
1: Yeah. um we think a lot about like who the ideal phage therapy candidates are, um given how how it works today. Um, as Simon said, patients have to be identified as candidates before they even sort of enter this the system, enter the screening process. Um, and the ideal patient is a patient who is sick and for whom antibiotic therapy is not sufficient, um, but also a patient that has um, the ability to wait weeks to months before their therapy is available. Because um, as it works right now, we have to, identify phages that are active and then basically custom formulate a cocktail of phage that's tailored to a particular patient's infection. So phage therapy right now is is the epitome of precision medicine because we have to make a different uh, treatment for each patient that we treat. And of course, this process of screening isolates, finding active phages, manufacturing them, purifying them, formulating them, and then testing the formulation to convince ourselves that it is what we think it is and that it's not going to hurt the patient. Uh, All of this takes a lot of time. And so, um, whereas initially the first couple of patients that uh, my lab was involved with treating, these were very critically ill patients who really had no other options and that were, um, you know, very sick and gravely ill. And For many of those patients, we were simply unable to help them in time. Um, And for the couple of patients where we were able to give them phage, it was definitely not under the ideal conditions of of like dosing or using a single phage instead of a cocktail of phage. And, um, And so when we don't see a clinical effect of the therapy, we wonder if it's because it's too little too late, or if something about how we dosed the phage was not ideal. And so we've sort of amended our approach over time to try and um, identify promising candidates as those that have more chronic infections where we uh, have time to make them phage and also they're resilient enough that we could see a clinical effect of the therapy.
0: That's really good to know because so many of our patients that um, have these multidrug resistant infections are patients who are not stably sick, who are acutely, critically ill. And so I do, I'm glad you guys highlighted that phage therapies at this time is maybe not the best option for um, patients who are that ill, just primarily because of timing and linking to that logistic issue. You guys touched on a couple of them, um, but can you further flesh out what other logistic challenges that clinicians considering phage therapy, even thinking about it, would have to think about um, if if they have a patient that they think might qualify. So, so far we have like time to make them. What are, what are some of the other ones?
2: So I think for some of the other ones, there is a lot of um, effort and time involved and part of the treating physician, you know, as well as actually everyone that contributes to this but, you know, for physicians and a clinical service, it will take time and effort in terms of getting all the paperwork that you need. There's IRB approval that is needed. Um, the FDA, you know, has a whole EIND packet that you or they will submit. And usually IPATH will help with that. So we have templates of consent forms, templates of treatment, and if the FDA EIND packet to help, you know, somebody put that together, you know, a little less painfully than it would. Um, but but there's all that, all that involved. There's certain uh, physicians or centers that I've spoken with, in which either they don't have the time to do that, and so they've sent their patient elsewhere. Um, and then also because of the IRB, you know, the FDA, and the, you, you need FDA and IRB approval both. And so at some some of the patients that I've actually treated at UCSD traveled to San Diego from other you know cities or states because where they were under care, their physician didn't really have an IRB that they worked with, and it wasn't an academic center. And so I think that those were some sort of logistical issues that then made it trickier for patients to get care. Um, But we certainly make an effort because now that, you know, there's so much interest and there's so many cases all over the U.S. of where phage has been used successfully to really try and help a patient find a physician that's close to them or a center that's close to them, you know, where they can get treatment rather than flying, you know, across the country or something uh, to get phage. But but that is a challenge too and so in particular at non-academic centers it may be a little
1: difficult. And to what Saima has just said I would add um for us to screen phage susceptibility we need a clinical isolate collected from the infected patient and um simply retrieving an isolate from a clinical microbiology laboratory and then shipping it to a lab, usually an academic lab for phage susceptibility testing um, sounds very straightforward and it turns out is sometimes very complicated um, simply because I have found working in a clinical division that like clinical micro labs operate a certain way and then research labs operate a certain way. and there is not often a lot of crosstalk between them. So as soon as a clinical micro lab realizes that they need to send a bacterial isolate to my research lab, half of the time, um, it doesn't happen because the institution, you know, the hospital gets involved and demands an MTA between institutions that we have to we have to wait for this material transfer agreement to work its way through our administration on both sides. Uh, and that can introduce a lot of delay, uh, simply to get an isolate so that we can test whether that isolate is susceptible to any of the phages in our library or not. Um, and then of course, yeah, as Saima said, all of this paperwork with the FDA, um, needing a detailed treatment plan, needing a lot of forms, needing a lot of information about the manufactured phage um, is very is daunting to have to put together for the first time. Um, and I would say for making phage in a laboratory and then sending it uh, somewhere else to be administered to the patient is is, of course, another issue that has to be dealt with. And there's a clear role for for pharmacists at investigational pharmacies um, to receive phage, to dose phage, to dispense the phage. Um, and so there has to be coordination between a, a clinical team. A bunch of researchers, and then uh, some pharmacists, we all have to work together to actually make this whole pipeline uh, function.
2: And I would actually add to that, too. I mean, in terms of, and and you're right, I mean, there are multiple areas where things get slowed down. Um, But then the, and sort of, so that's all just getting the patient to treatment. But I think the other thing, at least that I think is worth doing if somebody is treating a patient with phage, is to also then discuss ahead of time that we would like some research samples along the way. So because it's so new, we're still learning. You know what in what uh, what are the predictors of success in a patient, and you know how and when patients don't respond to phage? Is it because they develop resistance, or you know a few other factors? But having a plan up front, and usually this also requires resources. Uh, in which we can draw, for example, you know, serum samples on the patient prior to starting phage and weekly after phage for x number of weeks, um, and having a clear plan in terms of how we will measure success. So all these things are important too. But I think getting some of these research samples, whether it's serum or urine or, you know, whatever area we're uh, treating, you know, cultures of that area, for example, it's helpful for then somebody on, you know, Daria's end to use that information to see, well, did the patient develop a neutralizing antibody response to phage, or did the organism become resistant to phage? And, and, you know, maybe it happened and the patient still had a clinical, you know, successful clinical outcome. But I think getting these additional data points that are not necessarily part of clinical care is very helpful as we, you know, move through this to understand, again, predictors of success and how do we make it better for the next patient, and also use this information as we develop clinical trials. But that also will take time and energy on the treating physicians' part and generally some resources.
0: So, you mentioned bacteria developing resistance to bacteriophages. And considering we love talking about multi drug resistance here at Breakpoints, and our audience does too, um, what, how, how, so we've already said that pathogens can become resistant to bacteriophages. So that was one of my questions. And then with that, I guess how, what are some of those methods of resistance that you guys have observed um, being developed on therapy?
1: So I will say in the laboratory, it is stupidly easy to select for phage resistant bacteria. So simply propagating phages in the lab, uh, we often see, not, not in every case, but often we see that the bacteria in vitro will mutate quite readily to become phage resistant. And this obviously gives us pause about whether this happens in people. Um, As we study the phages that we're using in therapy more and more, we um, are getting an appreciation for the fact that when resistance to phage evolves in bacteria, it often comes at a cost to the bacteria. And when we take a multi-drug resistant bacterial strain and select in the laboratory for it to become phage resistant, it often will um, revert its antibiotic resistance. So in becoming phage resistant, the bacteria then become newly antibiotic susceptible. And we have um, seen some cases of, you know, clinically resistant MICs that revert to uh, MICs below the susceptibility breakpoint for particular antibiotics um, when a bacteria evolves phage resistance. So this opens up um, a large uh, sort of field of phage antibiotic synergy, and this is sort of where where we as researchers are kind of moving right now is to try and understand these rules of resistance on both sides. So when the bacteria become antibiotic resistant? Do they become newly susceptible to phage or when they evolve to become phage resistant? Do they become newly susceptible to antibiotic? Um, so there's a lot, a lot to think about and a lot to work through there beyond antibiotic resistance. Um, An easy way for bacteria to mutate and become resistant to phage is to modify the surface of the bacterial cell. So Phages that target gram-negative bacteria frequently use the lipopolysaccharide as a receptor for infection, so bacteria can mutate their LPS to become resistant to phage. LPS is a major virulence factor and causes inflammatory responses. And so when bacteria have alterations in their LPS, they may be less inflammatory, less virulent. So there's also the possibility for, um, for phage resistance conferring you know, a, a decrease in virulence or pathogenicity of the bacteria. Um, I will say my last thought before I turn it over to Saima to, to give her thoughts on this is that um, The patients that we have treated with phage therapy, um, for many of those phages, we can readily select resistance in vitro in the laboratory, but the patients, when we treat them, we have not seen resistant isolates emerge. Um, And when patients are treated with phage and their susceptibilities revert, um, oftentimes it's that the Resistant organism has actually been eliminated and a totally different strain of the same species has taken over. And that replacement strain is now susceptible to antibiotic. But um, rather than a, you know, a genetic mutation that that causes phage resistance and then reverts susceptibility, it seems like it's in fact straight a strain replacement that you've eliminated the MDR pathogen and it's the niche has been recolonized by another organism of the same species, but that's not susceptible to the phage. Um, at the end of the day, we just wanna get rid of the resistant organism. And so as clinicians, you may not care if it's the same bug or not. As researchers, as an evolutionary biologist, I do care a lot about whether it's the same organism or not, but that—that that is more of a, a scholarly question than a clinical one.
0: I love that so, uh, positive perspective, Daria. Well, hey, we just got rid of the resistant one. Who cares if there's still one there? As long as it's susceptible, we're still winning.
2: Well, I will say I have actually seen uh, several patients develop phage resistance while on treatment. Um, I've seen it in particular for pseudomonas, and I've treated a variety of patients with different organisms, the pseudomonas, uh, staph aureus, we have some, you know, Mycobacterium abscesses and other Gram negatives, E. coli, Klebsiella. I've only seen that phenomenon thus far in pseudomonas patients, and so I wonder if some of what we see in in vivo in terms of bacterial isolates developing phage resistance is dependent really on the bacterial phage interaction rather than a generality. And so I think certain bacteria probably are more prone to that and it may be because of the certain kinds of phages we use to treat them. So that's one. And some of, and some of that may be also that when we use phages clinically, we do tend to use it and what Gary, I think mentioned earlier, cocktail of phages, meaning a combination of two or more phages that actually attack the bacteria at different receptors or have different mechanisms of action in killing the bacteria that are somewhat complementary, so that when you use these um, different phages in combination in vivo, at times also with perhaps a synergistic antibiotic, that pathway towards resistance is actually not easy to overcome. Um, And so we don't tend to see resistant isolates that much. Um, I've also used monotherapy, but that's really been for staph aureus in particular, and we hadn't seen development of phage resistance in like six weeks of therapy. So I think, I, I think you know, as Darius said, in vitro, it is very easy to make resistant um, mutations and, and mutants. But in vivo, because you also have the patient's immune response, that's also acting on that infection. Um, and in general, I think, depending on the kind of infection we're treating, we may not have that same... Concentration of bacteria that we have in a, you know, a tube, a test tube, so that again the development of resistance mutations happens less often. But this is just based on an end of like less than 20. So I I think it's something we need to learn, And, and again that's why I had said earlier that it's important for us to get these data points now, as we treat each compassionate use case, so that we do learn more and more specifically for the kind of infection we're treating and perhaps the specific phage and bacterial interaction that we're treating.
0: Well, as much as I love multidrug resistance, like our Breakpoints listeners, it's always kind of, at first area, when you were talking, I was thinking to myself, wah, wah, oh no, like the resistance develops pretty quickly, but I'm really glad to hear, Saima, that this isn't so far in a small population seen too readily. Um, Plus in a way, it's nice to know and to hear that bacteria are just like us. They can't do it all. Develop resistance to everything (laughs) and take it. So that's comforting.
2: I will add one more thing. So there, you know, when we say resistance developing, it means, or it assumes, or that statement assumes that we know what is, you know, an MIC and we don't. So there is currently no standard criteria of how we assess a bacteria-phage interaction and say, this is susceptible, this is intermediate or resistance. So those terms we use because we're used to using those terms for antibiotics, but we don't really know how to standardize that. And so some of this discussion of what's resistant or not is not based on any of the extensive science that we use when we talk about antibiotic resistance. So so that's something that there is a lot of ongoing research, Uh, in particular, even in terms of how we test susceptibility. There are two main methods. So one is you grow a bacteria basically on an agar plate and have different dilutions of phage, and you look for lytic plaques. Uh, But you can also do something similar to growth kill sort of curve assay as well. And there is at least one study that I know of in which the growth kill curve assay and the agar plate assay actually were not did not correlate. So something susceptible in one assay, you know, so called susceptible in one assay was not on the other. So, so the susceptibility is something we're still learning in terms of how to standardize it. And I don't think, for what we know at the moment, that it's readily interchangeable with the language that we use for antibiotics and bacteria.
1: But Daria, you can clarify that further, I'm sure. Um, I think it's a, no, I think it's a really important point that we adapt the same language that has been used for for antibiotic susceptibility to phage, but um, the, you know, nearly a century of research into prudent and proper use of antibiotics um, it does not exist for, for using phage. And so I often tell people that we are literally building the plane as we are flying it. Um, when it comes to something simple as what dose and what frequency and what route of administration should we be giving therapy, phage therapy at, we really have no idea. Well,
0: you guys are doing an excellent job tying into all of my questions here. Um, my so, my next question for you guys was if you, if 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 it's possible, it sounds like there might be relatively different processes depending on where you are. But let's just use me for an example. I am at an academic medical center in a major city, um, but we do not have a phage lab. So could you walk if could you walk me through the process of accessing phage therapy for one of my patients? And some examples of things would be, who would I call? You've said it's taken some time, so, uh, how long should I expect to wait for that phage um, therapy to be developed if it's possible? Uh, what is the cost and in insurance coverage for this kind of therapy like? And how do I dose it? How How should I design my treatment regimen? Those are some of the examples of um, process things.
2: I can start off the conversation and then have Daria add in. But in general, at IPATH, uh, our email address is ipath at health. .ucsd.edu, we do receive similar questions actually from patients as well as physicians and pharmacists. And usually one of the things that we do here is actually match you know, patients to people like Daria and others, knowing you know, which group works with which organism. Um, and so I, I think, and, and you know, that doesn't have to be IPATH, it could be you can reach out to Daria directly, um, uh, there's Baylor College of Medicine in Texas that has a very active group as well. Um, but I think in general, you know you probably would reach out to somebody you know or you would reach out to one of these big centers with a brief description of the clinical you know case and why you think phage is helpful. If you reached out to us, then I would review the case, maybe reach out to you to figure out is this really a case we want to proceed with or not? Um, and then we will have, Put you in touch with Daria or somebody else's academic lab, so you can send your bacterial isolates to her, and sort of help you know figure out that piece. And then, when Daria has done all her end of the deal, which is finding the phages and you know manufacturing and cleaning and all that, then I can work with you or someone like me can work with you to develop a treatment plan. But currently, what we started doing, and you know, Daria said this earlier, we've sort of made it up. Uh, some of it is really based on our experience with antibiotic therapy. Usually, the concentration of phages that are now being used for treatment are 10 to the ninth uh, plaque-forming units per mill. Um, most of my patients I've actually treated as an outpatient because most of the people I've treated already had pick lines in place. They were used to IV antibiotics. So the first dose we've given them in our infusion center or in our research clinic, and we watch them to make sure they tolerate it well. We have a nice training manual and instructions and things like that. And then we'll give a week supply of phage for the patient to go home with. They have a daily diary they keep in terms of, this is the time I took my dose. you know These are the side effects or not that I had. They have my number and our coordinator's number to reach out to with any problems. But we'll see them weekly. We'll do video visits or have them come in person, but usually it's in person weekly for them to pick up the next week's supply of phage, for example, but also to get, you know, labs looking for safety. So their CBC, their CMP, et cetera, kidney function and liver function, and then also get cultures, whether it's urine, if it's recurrent UTI or you know, sternal wound samples, et cetera. And then serum samples for antibody testing—it's uh, things like that. Um, but duration, currently, when we talk about how long do we treat with phage, we are really basing it off of antibiotic therapy. So most of the prosthetic joint infection cases have been treated for four to six weeks with IV phage, as well as usually intraoperative or intraarticular phage, usually at time of surgery. Similarly, for left ventricular cyst device infections, it's been about six weeks of IV, you know, plus IV antibiotics for that duration. Um, A lot of times, depending on the kind of infection, if there's any sort of surgical debridement that's done, we'll also have phage put in locally to that site of infection. But Daria, you can talk about your piece.
1: Yeah, so um, logistics are complicated around getting the isolate to us for screening, but once it comes to the lab, it is relatively straightforward to figure out if we have anything useful or not um, by simply testing in vitro activity uh, of our phages against the isolate. And so the actual testing for susceptibility takes just a couple of days. um, And then we give that information back to the physician and ask, okay, do you want to proceed if yes, then we need to discuss like what a treatment plan would look like. And then in my lab, we have to start making, making the phage. Um, to the question of cost and insurance. So insurance does not cover this, um, but we also don't charge patients. So my lab, we have internal discretionary funding um, at the moment to cover the cost of, of uh, testing phage susceptibility and then manufacturing phage. And so we provide phage at no cost to, um, to the patients that receive it. Um, I know that there is associated cost with like clinic visits and, um, and supplies for, for dosing. And I'm not sure how that's handled, but on the manufacturing side, we don't charge patients for screening of isolates or for manufacturing or formulating phage for them. Um, and for, how we how we treat and how we dose um, it has been different for every patient that we have treated. Um, we've only treated a small number of patients at Pitt um, that my lab has been involved with, but each one has had a slightly different type of infection and and also different organisms. But uh, we've tried to design a treatment plan for each patient that considers um, where we think in their body they have a lot of bacteria that we're trying to target. So. Uh, Most patients get IV phage plus something else. So for example, a patient with a lung infection would get IV phage plus inhaled phage. Um, A patient with um, uh, an infection that we think originates in their gastrointestinal tract would get IV phage and oral phage. Um, A patient with uh, an infected LVAD or a wound that's infected might get IV phage plus topical or instilled phage um, to try and get sort of a a local administration as well. Um, and the, yeah, and the duration has also been variable from a couple of days to a couple of weeks to a couple of months in, in some cases.
2: You know, I forgot to add for the mycobacterial cases, those patients have been treated for generally six months or longer, similar to how we would treat, you know, M obsesses with antibiotics for you know, usually actually a year in the setting of transplant, but at least six months. So to ask, uh, add a little bit more about cost, um, so there are a few labs that have now actually started um, asking for some upfront costs for to basically cover their manufacturing costs. And that has ranged anywhere from 1,500 to 2,500 thus far. It, it's not everyone, it's just a few. Um, usually when we're treating patients, we do bill their insurance for the cost of the antibiotics that they would have gotten with the phage anyway, sort of as their OPAT, as well as we bill their um, insurance for you know basic labs, blood cultures, urine cultures, CBC, CMP, et cetera. Um, and then, but, but the other stuff, at least at our center also, we have uh, funding to cover these compassionate use cases. So currently at the moment, we're not charging Um, But I think, again, a few centers are now developing cost structures just because it is, you know, the interest has really blown up. So there's a lot of interest in doing this, and there certainly is a huge clinical need to do this. But it's difficult for labs and, you know, even for clinicians and other teams to keep doing this on an ever-expanding basis without any funding to continue doing that. So I think over the next couple of years we're going to start seeing some development of cost structures for this but really not so much to make profit but just so that they can continue to do that and continue to do the manufacturing and you know have have the the, the infrastructure to care for the patient but hopefully you know once we there are multiple clinical trials ongoing at the moment so hopefully at some point at least for certain indications if we have FDA approval i think that makes the you know that makes the case stronger than for us to reach out to an insurance company, but but that's that's way in the future.
0: Well, and fifteen to twenty five hundred dollars is relatively comparable to some of these multi drug resistant uh, agents that we're already using. Okay, so now thank you guys both for that overview about clinical use. Uh, I think I definitely have learned a lot and gotten a good handle on. What to consider when looking at an individual patient? So, for my last question, I want to know what both of y'all see as the future
1: for bacteriophage therapy. I'll start. Um, I am very hopeful that the clinical trials that are ongoing right now will um, meet their endpoints and uh, show show that the technology uh, works and that, Hopefully within a couple of years, we will not have to make phage for patients in my laboratory, um, that there would be FDA-approved phage-containing products that um, that could be used for their indication and maybe also off-label to treat organisms that are susceptible to the phages in those products. Um, That said, I think that there will still be a significant need for quite a while for uh, for phage therapy on an individual patient basis simply because given the diversity of multidrug resistant organisms um, and the nature of this technology being so precise, uh, there will never be a single cocktail, let alone a single phage that could target everything. So phages are, are the opposite of broad spectrum. They're exquisitely narrow spectrum. And so um I don't think that it's likely that we would have FDA approved phage therapies for all organisms that we would want to treat. And so I I view the work that we're doing right now as as bridging some of these patients to get to a point where there's an FDA approved product added to the antimicrobial armamentarium. Um, But I think that there's going to continue to be a significant need for um, sort of these one-off compassionate use uh, cases for quite a while. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think that phages definitely have a lot
2: of application. And I think moving forward, there certainly will be either or either end, you know, certain clinical indications that we know will respond well to phage, such as a variety of biofilm-based infections for which we know that antibiotics cannot cure those infections without removing the device. So that's certainly an area where I think there will be a need, and you know, hopefully, a you know, an armamentarium of phages that cover that need. But I think there are also a variety of other places where phages can help, um, and there are issues like, you know, in patients in cystic fibrosis or recurrent UTIs, um, and there may be indications of using phage as an antibiotic sparing alternative. Sort of, you know, when you mentioned the microbiome area and how these are so uh, phages are so targeted that we can treat patients without altering their microbiome and we've studied that in at least one patient and we treated him with staph aureus phage and saw you know nothing happened to that microbiome versus months of cefazolin or vancomycin or things so i think there's going to be a huge benefit And because the benefit is needed, I I think we will somehow make it happen. So it will be available for treatment, but I don't think they will make antibiotics go away. I I think these may be more so certain niches of what responds better to one form of therapeutic versus the other. And certainly there will be indications where both together, I think, may be better um, than either alone. But I mean we, we need it. We need something that's not an antibiotic, right? We, so we have I think we've talked about, at least not in this podcast, but there's an ongoing discussion of how there's not a lot of money being put into getting newer and newer antibiotics. And when companies do put in a whole lot of research and bring one to market two years down the road, we have you know either resistance or it's too expensive to use, et cetera. The phages, especially natural phages, are very cheap. They're just present in our environment, and they are constantly evolving with the bacteria in that environment. So there is, I think, an almost inexhaustible supply. What we're missing is an in, is an infrastructure. And so, if we're able to show benefit in clinical trials, or maybe in you know some of these compassionate use cases, and are able to build an infrastructure, there probably will remain a need for compassionate use cases with very tailored personalized therapy that Daria mentioned, but there also will be areas where mass-produced phage probably could be used um, You know, for a variety of indications for many patients um, at lower cost than a new antibiotic. We'll see.
0: <laughs> hey, I think that's really encouraging to hear that we're really just waiting on an infrastructure and this could be I mean, inexhaustible therapy sounds excellent to me. It's very contrary to what what we have now, where sometimes it feels like we're just chasing our tails, despite all of the major innovations that have come about. So I'm going to take that as a win. And now we're going to pivot to our I Feel Nerdy segment. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our guests and panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. And so today's, uh, for today's I Feel Nerdy, I'd love for both of you to talk about a favorite or maybe just memorable clinical case with
2: bacteriophage use. Well, I can start. I have many, but <laughs> one that I, I met very recently as follow-up in clinic is the one I can talk about. Um, this lady I had treated with phage in September, 2021, or September, October. She's a liver kidney transplant recipient with recurrent episodes of trans, uh, transplant pyelonephritis, bacteremia, septic shock, from mostly ESBL Klebsiella pneumoniae. So it's something that's incredibly common all over transplant centers in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, but we, for which we have no answer. So she has been tried in a variety of different suppressive antibiotics, but she would keep coming back in. I tried to you know have an antibiotic at the ready for her to call in when she felt sick but she would basically feel sick and 2 hours later would be in septic shock so that that didn't work so we tried suppressive antibiotics that didn't work and for a while i actually had her on ertapenem for maybe 3 months i think <laughs> so that she was out of that hospitalization cycle uh, every you know month or so so eventually, um, along uh, with colleagues from Texas A&M and Monash in Australia, we treated her with a combination of three different phages that really targeted the ESVL Klebsiellas that she'd had from blood and urine um, isolates. And so she, I treated her September 2021. And since then, she actually has not had any ESVL Kleb. She had no UTIs for about six months. And then she's had a few since then, um, but they've been drug susceptible, Klebsiella, so you get a course of Cipro or something and it's resolved. Um, And then a few other organisms here and there. But she hasn't received IV antibiotics since a year and a half now and no ESPLs. And it's wonderful. For her, her life changed because she lived on a pick. And at some point, we kept on doing surveillance cultures after phage to see, you know, is this organism going to come back or not? And she had a couple in a row and she's like, do you think I can take out my pick? And we're like, yes, let's do it. And it hasn't gone back in. So it, it was really wonderful.
0: Uh, that story makes my heart so happy. That was one of the first things I thought of is, wow, like she pro- not being on IV therapy for so long, probably made such a huge difference for her
1: um i will also talk about a, like a kind of a feel good winning case on our end um which was a case of a a patient uh also a, a woman uh in her 50s that had episodes of recurrent enterococcus faecium bacteremia and um looking back in her in her chart the first documented episode at least at our health system was in uh 2013 but this woman had every every year, a couple of times a year, had an E bacteremia episode um, and would get would get a- antibiotic therapy and clear the bacteremia and go back home, only to come back, you know, a couple of months later. So this, you know, over and over and over again, um, infection episodes. Um, and I am very interested in enterococcus, like my lab studies enterococcus and it's um, it's a, a perplexing question to us how this particular patient would always get EVCM bacteremia and be unable to clear it themselves and that's that's a question for a different day um when I have more to nerd when we have more information and can nerd out more about it but um this uh patient in 2020 uh, had seven different hospitalizations for EVCM bacteremia and all kind of came to a head and um, we got involved you know, I think episode like three or four of that year, starting to look for phage for her. And we were able to find phage, um, but before she got phage, she was persistently bacteremic for four weeks and um, just nothing nothing was touching the the bacteria. Um, And so as soon as we added phage to her regimen, we didn't change her antibiotic therapy. We simply added a single phage and she cleared her blood cultures immediately. And then a week later, was no longer sick enough to be in the hospital and was able to be discharged home. Um, and I continued on therapy as an outpatient and basically avoided hospitalization for much of the next year. And so, the yeah, the, it's a feel good story because you know this patient was able to go on vacation with her family, which she had not been able to do for a very long time, um, and and improve had experienced a, a greatly improved quality of life because. Uh, because of the phage therapy that she received. Um, and the last thing that is sort of like back to feeling nerdy about, so this patient, um, we knew she was colonized with e in her gut. So she received both IV phage as well as oral phage. Um, and she was a very diligent patient and provided weekly stool samples during the course of her therapy. Um, and we've just started looking at what what was going on in her GI tract, um, before getting phage therapy, and then on therapy, and I'm very excited to have a look at um, the microbiome data from from these samples to see, because an outstanding question in uh, oral phage therapy is whether any active phage actually get into the you know into the small intestine, um, or if they're just all destroyed in the stomach. Um, and I think we have the opportunity to get a get a glimpse at at that question with the samples that we have from this patient. Oh my goodness. This is such a
0: perfect way to end the episode and a great, I feel nerdy. I definitely feel warm and fuzzy. And this just re I'm sure for the both of you who are such experts in this field and and work on this so heavily and so often that these cases probably really reaffirm why you do what what you do and like why we all do what we do in terms of doing what we can to take care of patients and really change quality of life. So uh, thank you so much for sharing those stories um, with us. I was not expecting to cry on this episode of Breakpoints, but, you know, tearing up with the feel-good stories there. Uh, But I would just like to thank you guys both for being here today. Uh, We really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise, expertise and um, your v- viewpoints. And thanks to our listeners for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Britt, and our featured speakers have been Saima Aslam and Daria Van Tyn. Breakpoints was created by Julian Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Julian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. It was edited by Emily Kirkpatrick, Wes Hoffman, and Mary Catherine Vance. Our production team includes Veronica Zafonte and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.